Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the privilege it is to be able to come before your word this morning. Lord, we know that your word is powerful and effective. Lord, it changes our lives. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that you would sharpen the Christians that are here this morning as we look into your word together. And we pray for unbelievers who may be present amongst us this morning. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would use your word to awaken them. Your word does indeed bring life. And so we pray that it would bring life this morning as it is proclaimed here from this pulpit. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I love getting mail, and not just email, but particularly postal mail. And there's one type of mail that I really like to receive in my letterbox, and that is parcels, where something has obviously been delivered uh, by a courier. And this is an exciting thing because we like to receive larger items. It could be a present or something. And I also like deliveries because it means that I haven't had to go to the shop and pick the thing up myself. I really like buying things on the internet. I think the internet has been a great blessing in that regard. And so I love to receive parcels to my house. And my kids love to receive mail and they love to see parcels left at the doorstep as well. And whenever they see a delivery has been left, they've got lots of questions. What are the kinds of questions you ask when you see a parcel sitting on your doorstep? Well, they ask, you know, who is it for? Uh, What is it? Who sent it? Why has it come? They have all these kinds of questions that they're badgering at you with, and if you're in a grumpy mood, you just say, it's not for you and I don't know. Um, But sometimes you play along a little more and you say, well, read the name on the front, and you give them a little more incentive uh, to uh, keep asking those questions about the surprising fact that someone has left a box on our front doorstep. This morning, we're going to look at the greatest delivery in history, the greatest delivery in history, and that is proclaimed for us in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, that passage that we just had read for us that finishes with Romans chapter 4, verse 25. And there we see that a great delivery has taken place, and that's my first main point this morning, that Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins. And we see that in verse 25 of Romans chapter 4, found on page 1115. I encourage you to have that page open before you this morning as we look at it together. Page 1115, what is the great delivery that has taken place? Verse 25 says, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins is my first main point this morning. But does the text actually say that? Verse 25, he was delivered over to death for our sins. Who was delivered? What was delivered? It was Jesus. But it says there in the text it was he. How do we know it's Jesus? Well, if you just look back to verses 23 and 24, you soon see that it's Jesus. It says, the words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. And then the word in verse 25 that's translated he, the personal pronoun, obviously refers back to Jesus. What was delivered? It was Jesus. Who was Jesus? Well, Romans tells us a lot about Jesus, but it opens up in the first chapter by telling us that he is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. He was God himself, came into this world and was sinless. He lived a sinless life. 
And if you read the Gospels, you learn a lot more about who Jesus was, what he did while he was here on earth. But he was the Son of God. We read that in Romans chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Who, as to his human nature, was a descendant of David, and who, through the Spirit of holiness, was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. He was fully human. And as to his human nature, he was a descendant of David, we read there in Romans 1. But we also learn that he was the Son of God. Now, whenever we receive a delivery, we want to know what is being delivered, but we also want to know who has delivered the parcel that has come to us. Who delivered Jesus? Who delivered Jesus? Who was he delivered to? Are the next questions we want to ask. Who was Jesus delivered to? Well, in verse 25, it says he was delivered over to death. He was delivered over to death. Jesus was handed over to death. Did Jesus indeed die? Yes. All the Gospels tell us about Jesus' death. And that it was a real and actual death that took place. In John chapter 19, the passage that we looked at, well, Ray looked at on Good Friday, John chapter 19, verse 32, we read at the end of that chapter, that it says, The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Did Jesus die? Yes. It's quite clear, even the soldiers, these guys were experts at killing people. They made sure he was dead. They saw he was dead, and then just to make doubly sure, they plunged a spear into his side. And the mixture of blood and water indicates that he really was dead. Cardiologists will confirm that that's what happens when someone really does die, that the blood separates from the water in the inside, in the internal cavities. So Jesus was delivered to death. Who delivered Jesus over to death? We read in verse 25, he was delivered over to death for our sins. Who did the delivering? Well, the text doesn't actually say. Jesus is passive in it, it seems to be. But who delivered Jesus? When we think of someone handing Jesus over, who do we usually think of? Well, we might think of Judas. Judas is the usual candidate that people would start to think about. And Jesus did indeed deliver, uh, Judas did deliver Jesus over to death. Mark chapter 14 verse 10 describes what happened with Judas. It says, Then Judas, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Judas was definitely involved in Jesus being delivered over to death. But what about the Father himself? Did God the Father deliver Jesus over to death? Romans chapter 8, verse 32, same book written by the Apostle Paul. It says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. What's it saying there? That God the Father gave up Jesus for us all. He is the one who delivered Jesus over to death. There are many people who delivered Jesus over to death. You could look at Pilate as well. But ultimately, who's behind it all? It's God the Father handing Jesus over to death. God could have stopped it at any point. But he sent his son to the cross. He delivered Jesus over to death. And we could even say that Jesus himself 
gave himself over to death. Jesus was a willing participant in his death. He could have resisted his death. He says, I could call 12 legions of angels to come and assist me. But he doesn't. He even goes out. I I love reading about his arrest where you think of these soldiers that have come with the religious leaders and who's in charge when Jesus is arrested? How's it read, particularly in John 18, where Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them. They come to him and he goes out to them and asks them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he, Jesus said. Jesus is a willing participant in his death. He delivers himself over to death. So we see what was delivered. It was Jesus. Who was Jesus delivered to? It was to death. Who delivered Jesus over? Well, ultimately, it's God the Father and Jesus. Yes, there's other people involved, but it's only by their power, by their willingness, that this happens. But why was Jesus delivered? This sounds terrible. Do we understand what this means? The Son of God is delivered over to death. Why on earth would God the Father and God the Son allow this to happen? What does the text say? Romans 4, verse 25. He was delivered over to death for our sins. He was delivered over to death for our sins. When Jesus went to the cross, when he died, he did that as someone who is bearing the sins of his people. There's an amazing verse in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, that says, God who made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who had no sin, he had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became sin at the cross. When God looked at him, he punished him for the sins of his people. He was delivered over for our sins. That is the reason he was delivered. Far more important reason than any of the deliveries that have come to my doorstep. Usually it's because I've paid some money and that they've come. Sometimes someone sends me something for free. It's a gift. But this is what was happening with the delivery that took place with Jesus Christ. It was a payment that was being made so that this would happen. It came for our sins. And it happens all because of the love of God. Said God himself is behind this. He shows his wrath to the Son, but he does it at the same time in his love. This is an amazing thing. We often can emphasize one at the expense of the other. We can go down the track where we're continually talking about the wrath of God at the cross. But we forget that it's because of God's love. The Father loved the world that he sent his one and only Son. That's what's happening at the cross. Why was Jesus delivered over to death? Because of our sins and behind it all is the love of God. So a great delivery takes place at the cross. 
we see that Jesus, the Son of God, was delivered by the Father and by himself over to death. And why did it happen? For our sins. What happened to Jesus after his death, though? Is that the end of the story? Well, then a second truth is given to us in Romans 4.25, which is what we want to consider this Easter morning as well. And what is that? Well, that brings me to my second main point this morning. Jesus was raised to life for our justification. Jesus was raised to life for our justification. And we see that in verse 25. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. This in itself is another delivery in itself. This is a delivery. We see that Jesus was delivered over to death, but he was also delivered from the grave here. He was delivered from the grave to life. But was Jesus really raised to life? Do the scriptures teach this other than Paul saying it here in Romans chapter 4, verse 25? The scriptures continually teach us that Jesus was indeed raised to life. If you read the end of the Gospels, they tell you this. And then there's this one passage that I love in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where we see the Apostle Paul bring out the resurrection as a great game changer for everyone. And I just want to show you that this morning briefly here on page 1139. Turn with me there now, page 1139. This is a key text. If you're a Christian, you should have this in the back of your head at all times. If anyone asks you about the resurrection of Jesus, this is the go-to passage. I mean, you can go to the Gospels as well. I shouldn't proclaim one text of the Scripture over another, but I love this passage because it's such a good summary of the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. And then, if you're really game, uh, you can continue reading and see the importance of Jesus' resurrection from this passage as well. But I just want to read from verse 1. Roman, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, page 1139, where Paul says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the wor- word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. What is the gospel? Verse 3. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. There we see the resurrection proclaimed in verse 4. But does he stop there? No, he keeps going. Verse 5. And that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Multiple resurrection appearances to the twelve, to Peter, and to 500 of the brothers at the same time. Is that it? Is that all the evidence? No, verse 7. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. James being the Lord's brother. He appeared to his own biological brother through his his mum, Mary. He convinced his own brother that he was the son of God, which is pretty incredible. And you can read uh, the book of James in the Bible. It's not James, the brother of John. It's James, the brother of Jesus. And if anyone's going to be a skeptic about someone being the son of God, it'd be your siblings. Um, But James believed. Why? Because Jesus appeared to him in the flesh after his death. Anyone else? Then to all the apostles and then 
It doesn't stop there. Verse 8. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Who's being spoken of there in verse 8? The Apostle Paul. He appeared to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. It was a bodily appearance of Jesus that Paul saw on the road to Damascus. Other people saw a bright light. Other people heard a noise. But Paul had Jesus appear to him. And then it goes on to speak about the importance of the resurrection of the dead. And I encourage you this afternoon. You've got a public holiday today and tomorrow. What are you going to do with it? Think of no better thing to do than read the rest of 1 Corinthians 15. It spells out the importance of the resurrection of the dead for us as believers. It is so good. But that proves to us there's so much evidence there. And there's other evidence in the scriptures as well that teach us that Jesus really was raised to life. It's not just Paul who says it in Romans 4 verse 25. He was raised to life. So why was he raised to life? Why was he delivered from death? We ask that question when something is delivered. Why does it happen? Why is it delivered? Why does it, has this delivery come? My kids love to want to know, and love to ask that question. Why has the delivery come? Well, what does Romans 4:25 say to us? Romans chapter 4 verse 25, which is back on page 1115. Turn back with me there now, page 1115, Romans chapter 4 verse 25 says he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Why was Jesus delivered from death to life? For our justification. What does that mean? What does the word justify mean? The word justify is a legal word that's used to when someone is in right standing in a court. If you are justified, you are proven right. And we use this not just in legal context, but we use it in our society and particularly in our family context. We like to justify ourselves before our wives or our husbands or before our parents. We like to prove that we were right in our actions. We try to seek justification all the time, that we haven't lied. We're telling the truth. And then it's proven by something else. We're justified in our speech. What is the justification that is being spoken of here? It's that in God's court of law, instead of you being condemned as unrighteous, you are confirmed as righteous. You are justified before God. And the text says that that is the reason Christ was raised to life. Does that mean that somehow Jesus justified us by his resurrection? Don't we speak of his death being the source of our justification, that there he is paying for our sins, there the great transfer is taking place where his righteousness is coming over to us and our unrighteousness is uh, being taken over to him. So what's it got to do with his resurrection? How can the text say that he was delivered over to death for our sins, which sounds like justification, but then he was raised to life for our justification? What is being meant here? Well, it's not so much that Jesus was justifying us when he was raised to life. That's not what's being spoken of here. It's that what is happening here is that Jesus' resurrection proves our justification. Another way that the word is translated uh, that 
uh, is translated for in the NIV translation you have before you in Romans 4.25, that he was raised to life for our justification. Another way you could translate that is with the word because. And that's how the New American Standard Version has it. He was raised to life because of our justification. What is happening with Jesus' resurrection and our justification? What is being said here by Paul? What Paul is saying is that when Jesus was raised to life, it was a statement from God the Father that we were right in his eyes, that we were justified in his eyes. At the cross, Jesus takes our sin upon him. But how do you know that he really has taken our sin and paid for it, that he has satisfied God's wrath? It's the fact that he came back to life. If he hadn't come back to life, then there would still be something owing. But the fact that Jesus came back to life shows that sin was completely paid for. Death has a warrant on sinners, on people who have committed sin. And Jesus took that sin that we have over onto him, and so death had a warrant on him because of our sin. But then if he came back to life, it proves that death no longer had a hold on him because sin was no longer on him. It was completely paid for. And this is what the Apostle Peter proclaims in one of his sermons in Acts chapter 2, verse 24. Peter says, But God raised him, that's Jesus, from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. It was impossible for death to keep its hold on Jesus. Why? Because he had paid the sin. He had paid the sin of you and me. And so there was nothing else owing. It's kind of like if you go into hospital and then you're allowed to leave. Why do they let you leave? Because the disease is dealt with. And they can't do anything else with you. And so you're allowed to leave. Now, of course, you may have more things to do at home. There may be rehab that takes place, but hopefully you're going out with some sort of cure. They can't help you anymore. The disease has gone. That's how you'd like to leave hospital. Or another way that we could picture this is when children are released from detention, from the time out. Why are they released? It's because nothing else is owing. My children know this, that I go in when they're in time out and I speak to them and we make amends in some way and then I release them. And so that action of letting them pass through the bedroom doorway demonstrates the father's approval of the child, that they are resurrected into the life of the house and they're allowed to enjoy the good things of the house once more. That's what happens when we let the child out. We know that it's the parent's approval, that nothing else is owing. If something else is owing, then they need to stay in there longer. But if they're allowed out then the parents are approving. And that's what's happening with Jesus. Why was he raised to life? Because nothing else was owing. The Father's approval was shown. And so Christ's sacrifice for sin is far superior to any other sacrifice for sin that ever has been attempted in history. You see in the Old Testament, if you read the Old Testament carefully, there's a lot of mentions of 
dead cows, dead lambs, dead goats, dead birds, and some people find it very tedious to read through all that information about how to kill the bulls, how to kill the goats, how to kill the lambs, how to make sacrifices for sins. What's the amazing thing about Jesus being a sacrifice for sin and all those dead animals in the Old Testament? There is no mention of a dead animal ever getting back up again. No dead animal that ever took sin upon it was raised to life afterwards. Why? Because sin was still owing. No animal ever died as a sufficient sacrifice for sin. And that is shown by their continued state of death. But Jesus is different from all those other sacrifices. Why? Because he came back to life. And what does that show? Death no longer had a hold on him. Why does death no longer have a hold on him? Because sin was paid for. So what does Paul mean when he says in verse 25 of Romans chapter 4, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification? Because of our justification, he was raised to life. Because we were justified at the cross by Christ's sacrifice, because sin was completely paid for, he was raised to life. Now there's something interesting about this text. It has a word that's translated twice here with a little word, our. Verse 25, it says, He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Who is the our in this text? Who is this pronoun referring to? Because that's very important. If we understand that Jesus was delivered over to death for certain people's sins and then was raised to life for certain people's justification. Who is being referred to here? Is it just the Apostle Paul that's being referred to here? And he's using like the royal we, you know? We are not amused, is the Queen is supposedly has said once at a dinner, ta- a dinner party where someone told something that was a, a, a bit of a rude joke and she said, we are not amused. Is that what Paul is doing here? He's using the royal we? Who is this hour that's being spoken of? Who is the delivery for? That's what my kids want to know when a parcel shows up on the doorstep. Who's it for? With the slim chance that it might be for them. They're hoping, they're hoping, hoping, hoping. It's for me, this parcel. And that should be our response now this morning as we read this text. It's saying... It's for someone's sins and it's for someone's justification that these Easter events have taken place. Who is the hour? Well, it's those who have faith in God. It's those who have faith in Jesus Christ. It's those who believe, those who trust. Now, why would I say that? Because the text tells us that. What does it say in verse 18 and following? It holds up Abraham as an example of someone of faith who received life as a result of that faith and received justification, received righteousness because of that faith. Look with me at verse 18. Verse 18, it says, Against all hope, 
Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham is introduced as a person of faith, uh, well, a person of hope. And then it says in verse 19, without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Now, this starts to get a bit complicated if you don't know your Old Testament. Because who is Abraham? Who's Sarah? Who are these people that think they're dead? And what's going on here? Well, basically, Abraham was this man who God made a promise to. Made a promise that from him, he would have offspring and have a great nation from that offspring. But the thing was, Abraham was an old man. That's what it means when he considered his body as good as dead. And his wife was old as well. And the, if you go back to the original uh, text, it actually says that she had actually been through menopause. And so God made this promise to an old man and an old woman that you would have a son. And she laughs at it. That's why their son, who eventually comes up, uh, comes along. Isaac is called, it's after someone who laughs. It, it, that's what the word means. It's just laughable that these two old people would have life come out of them. But what did Abraham do in response to this promise? What do we read? Verse 20. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but he was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. What did he do? Did he waver in unbelief? No, he had faith. He believed God. And what did God do as a result of him trusting in his promise? Verse 22. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham is held up as this person in the Old Testament who is the marvellous example for us to follow, who trusted God's word, who believed God, and then as a result Righteousness was credited to him. And we're supposed to follow his example. That's what Paul says in verse 23. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness, justify us, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Who is the hour that said twice in verse 25, the one whose sins Jesus was delivered over to, the one whose justification Jesus was raised because of? It says in verse 24, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. It's not for those who are really good people. Because let's face it, none of us are. We all sinned against God. It's for those who have faith, for those who believe. What does it mean to have faith? What does it mean to believe? It means that you're fully persuaded, that you're trusting on something. That's what it says there in verse 20 about, uh, about uh, Abraham. It says, Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. He was persuaded and he was fully persuaded. He had evidence to put his faith upon. And that's what we have today. I'm not telling you to believe in something that's an airy-fairy myth. 
I'm telling you to believe in something that has a solid foundation for it. Two truths are proclaimed to us in the scripture that we should base our faith upon. One, of course, is the resurrection that is proclaimed for us here. If Jesus was raised to life, then we one day can be raised to life too. It'd be foolish to believe that you can be raised to life on the word of someone who is still dead in the grave. But if Jesus was raised to life, then we can be raised to life too. And the Apostle Paul says that later on in this same book, Romans chapter 8, verse 11. It says, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. If you trust in Jesus, then the same spirit that raised him to life will raise you as well. And that is a foundation for your faith. What's the other foundation that we have for our faith? Well, it's that Jesus Christ died for our sins. The other half of Romans 4.25. See, ultimately, these two truths that are taught in Romans 4.25 are what your faith stands on if you're a Christian. And without either of these, Christianity would be worthless. If you take away one or the other, it's worthless. What you're seeing here in Romans 4.25, you could say is Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And if you take away Good Friday, if you take away that Jesus died for your sins, but he was raised to life, how is that helpful to you? Someone came back to life, good for him. But how are you going to come back to life when you've still got sins owing upon you and death still has a warrant out for you? But let's say you have Good Friday but not Easter Sunday. How is that helpful? Jesus paid for your sins? What's that going to do for me if it means I can't come back to life? Something is still owing, potentially, if Jesus didn't come back to life. But the wonderful thing about Christianity is that both parts of this verse are true. He was delivered over to death for our sins. Yes. And was raised to life for our justification. Yes. This is the wonderful thing about Easter. Our sins are paid for and we have this fantastic hope that we will be raised to life as Jesus was raised to life. And we know our sins were paid for because he was raised to life. Won't you accept these two truths? Will you accept one but not the other? Well, that's a foolish thing to do. Will you accept Good Friday but reject Easter Sunday? Jesus died for my sins, yes, but he didn't come back to life. Well, will you accept that Jesus came back to life but not that he died for your sins because maybe you're not that much of a sinner? Read the Bible if you think you're not a sinner. It shows you what God thinks of sin and what is classified as sin. And you'll soon learn that you are indeed a sinner. Will you accept these two truths this Easter Sunday morning? And if you have accepted them, if you have trusted that Jesus Christ died for you and have this hope that Jesus was raised and that you will be raised one day like him, Do you glory in God for this, knowing that's all because of his love that this happened? Does this shape your entire life, knowing these two truths? 
Does it lead you to love him and serve him in whatever way you can? And does it lead you to share it with those around you? Who are you going to see this Easter Sunday who's not a believer, who doesn't trust these two truths, that Jesus was delivered over to death for their sins and that he was raised to life for their justification? Who are you going to see that I'm not going to see and nobody else at this church is going to see Who are you going to see this Easter that doesn't believe these two things? And are you going to have the love for them that is required to mention the meaning of Easter, the true meaning of Easter, and share maybe even this verse? You might have an hour or two before you see them. Try memorising this verse. It's a tremendous verse. Try memorising it before you see them. And then at some point in the conversation, if the true meaning of Easter comes up, spout this to them and see what happens. The word of God is powerful and effective. It can raise the dead. Let's see if it raises the dead for someone that you love this Easter. Let's come to God in prayer. Let us speak with him now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for both of these truths, that Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life because of our justification. Lord, we pray that we would love these two truths. May they motivate us to do whatever we can in service of your kingdom. And Lord, we pray that we would even share these with those around us so that they too may share in your grace. Lord, we do also pray for anyone here this morning who is not mentioned in this verse, who is not mentioned by the pronoun our. Lord, we pray that they may consider where they are headed, that they are still in their sins and they're not justified before you, and they have no hope of resurrection to eternal life. We pray that they may not rest until they find rest in you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.